it's a little crazy. Is that that screen screen frozen up or we good? No, no, we're good. We're good. Okay. So so other 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 than that, you know, it, it's it, it's tough. And and on on here in the states on for regional promotions, and I'm sure probably I don't know what the situation is there in Australia, but here in the states for regional promotions, you're you're only allowed to have a certain amount of people in the arena at a certain time. So it's really hard for regional promotions to do events off television. Uh, when you have television uh, and, and, you know, that's mostly your larger entities, you know, like the UFC and Bellator that have those, those major television deals, you can afford to do a show off off television or can afford to do a show without an audience. Whereas on a regional level, the audience is where you get your money. That's where you make your money. So uh, right now it's, it's kind of hitting our industry pretty hard. Uh, but, you know, fortunately the UFC has a major television deal. So people are still able to get to see mixed martial arts and MMA and still get to enjoy it. But the audience doesn't get to sit inside and see it. I, just to give context, you were so. I know I said it before, but I'm, I'm going to say it again. Um, so you were with the UFC for 15 years. You were basically the guy that ran everything out the back with them. You were, yes, you know, you were the man at, at the UFC. That's how I, I initially met you, and always wanted to have a conversation with you. So, um, can you tell us then how? Because you went from working with the UFC, and now you're running your own regional promotion. Can you speak about that gap and how that happened? just for for context for the people that don't know well i i i actually transitioned from boxing to mma uh before coming to mma and the ufc i was in boxing uh i worked with joe frazier uh and i worked with him for a number of years as his manager as smoking joe frazier with that left hook uh worked with him as his manager for a number of years and then transition from him fighting to retirement to promotion, promoting his son. Uh, you know, Joe, Joe had a, that was a fight family. You know, he had three sons and one daughter that all boxed and all were in the boxing game. And he wanted to promote them himself. So he started doing promotions and, you know, I was the guy. I was the guy that kind of had to put all that stuff together and create promotions and go out and get venues and get hotels. And that's when I started learning to become a coordinator uh, in uh, combat sports. Uh, so Joe was promoting his sons. He had Marvis Joe Jr. He had Rodney Frazier. He had Mark Frazier. He had his Anthony. He had Yank Dorm, who was his primary trainer, Joe actually had his son, Chandler Durham, who was also boxing. So we did shows around the Philadelphia and started doing them on television. And that's that's when I started laying groundwork for Burt Watson to become a coordinator. And to transition, I did shows in Philly, internationally, and, and did a lot of time in Las Vegas. How, you know, how the MGM Grand, Mandalay. How did that? How did that happen with you and Joe Frazier? How, how did you and he end up working together? 
Oh man, how many days you got? <laughs> man, I, I just want to yeah, know about it, man. That's that's me, the stuff I want to know. Let me let me tell you something. It it was it was my life has been full of for chances. And that's why I tell everybody, you know, always accept the things in life that come before you, handle them as if they're gonna go away quickly, because you never know when they're gonna come back. I believe in a one in one, you get one chance and one chance to mess it up. And I say that word nicely. So you gotta you gotta treat it because it's a chance. By chance, one day I'm walking down the street in Manhattan, where I worked. There was a car accident. Uh, in the Sorry, middle. what work did you do? Just out of curiosity, what work did you do? I fucking always want to know this. Uh huh. I was I was actually in the in the fashion industry. Okay. Uh, I went to I went to school for fashion designing. Uh, I was not an artist. But I went to school for fashion designing on tailoring and how to make clothing. And that was the industry that, that I was in. Uh, I started with Burlington Industries and I eventually got a job with Levi Strauss, the jean maker. Uh, and that's what I did. I was, I was a salesman for them, as you can tell. <laughs> you yeah, know? you got the gift of the uh, gab for sure. <laughs> I was a salesman. So the office was in Manhattan. And I was, I was commuting uh, from Jersey, and then I moved to Manhattan. But my office was in Manhattan, and I would get off on 42nd Street. The office was on 56, so I would walk every morning from 42nd Street to 56. And I was walking up and down uh, 42nd Street to Fifth Avenue to walk over, and it was a car accident, and, and cars stopped in the middle of the street. And the cars couldn't get around because of the accident. So in that grid of traffic, there was a limo. And somebody jumped out that limo to see what was going on and what was happening. And that somebody was smoking Joe Frazier. <laughs> and I'm standing maybe, uh, I'd say maybe about 20 feet away or so. And I saw him and I did a double take because you know, like everybody else. I was you know, smoking jokes. Yeah, I was a sports fan. And uh, I got got to meet him. We said, hey, and, you know, we just kind of just kind of exchanged numbers. And I figured that that was going to be the end of it. But I had his number, okay, which was the number to the gym. But how? Like, because, you know, you might meet, you might meet celebrities and whatnot. But how did you go from, hey, man, I'm a fight fan, to smoking Joe Frazier? And if, and if people don't know who Joe Frazier is, he's one of the best heavyweight boxers of all time. Like Any, Anybody on anybody looking at this show that don't know who smoking Joe Frazier is, turn it off. <laughs> yeah, please, please. <laughs> okay. Unsubscribe. Okay. I don't want it. Okay. Because I'm going to tell you something. If you – and it did happen to us, and when I say us because I was a part of it, but – it was very seldom that you mentioned Muhammad Ali without mentioning Joe, Joe Frazier. True that, 100%. Those, True that. Two, those two names were always mentioned together because they had three of the best fights, heavyweight fights, fights in the history of boxing. But to answer your question, that happened because that was the person that Joe Frazier was. He was a people person. He was not above the stars because most celebrities 
and most people in entertainment and sports, you know, they, it, it's very hard for the average person to go and touch, you know, the average celebrity, depending on the person that he is and then, then just the way the world is. But Joe Frazier was a, he was a plain old Joe. He was a down home street guy who acted like it, even though he was the heavyweight champion of the world, you know, one of the biggest names and faces in sports. So being the person that he was, when I introduced myself to him and I put a hand out to say, hey, he put his hand out and we just started talking. And he talked to me like he was somebody, like I was somebody he had known all his life, which I wasn't. And, uh, you know, he said, well, hey, listen, uh, you know, uh, I got to gym in Philly and I say, Philly, I'm, that's my hometown. I, I'm there all the time. My mom's still there and yada, yada, yada. And his thing was, well, if you're ever in Philly, here's the number to the gym. Give me, a, give me a shout. Just like that. Like I was another celebrity. <laughs> okay. Or, or somebody that he was trying to set a fight up with. And he gave me the number and uh, I did just that. Kind of called him and communicated with him. And for a while there, when in, in transition, we kind of lost contact a little bit. Here's the kicker. So in the time of losing time, because time passes, this happened, oh, I'd say maybe in 1979 or so. I don't want to give them kind of dates out because then I'll tell you how old I am. <laughs> uh, so, so. Going on, uh, Joe retired in 1981. And I was in the transition of moving back from New York to Philadelphia. So I did. I moved back to Philadelphia. So around 1982 or so, my niece got married in Philadelphia. And a friend of my mother's gave my niece as a present a limousine for her wedding. Ironically, the limousine company was owned by Smoking Joe. It was Joe Frazier's limousine company. That's what he did in Philadelphia. He owned the limo company in Philly and ran the gym. And in fact, ran the limo company out of the gym. So when she gave my niece the present as a limousine company, it was Joe's. And here's where the story gets even crazier. So the day of her wedding, Joe Frazier comes in his gym, and at the time we were using clipboards for, you know, records, and you'd write, you sign in and sign out, you know, not the days of the computers. Then it was clipboard with a pencil on it. He came into the gym that day, he picked up the clipboard, and he looked at it, and he saw that the driver for my niece's wedding was not there. So you know what he did? Nah, nah, come on. He jumped in the limo and drove it himself. The limo pulls up in front of my mom's house, and my, my nephew comes and says, Hey, Uncle Bert, the limo's outside, you know, and he's waiting. And my niece wasn't ready, so I said, Listen, you go tell him to park that limo. We'll be out there in a few minutes. And I said, No, you know what? I'll go myself. And then he said, You know what? That guy out there in that limo looked kind of familiar. <laughs> so I said, Okay. That's what my nephew said. So I went, and my nephew at the time might have been 10 or so, 11. I walked out to the limo, 
walked around to the driver's side. The guy rolled the window down, looked at me, and was smoking Joe Frazier. <laughs> Just to give I, to I, give I, context, that's like uh, Anthony Joshua driving his uh, the the limousine, like right, or or, or, or Klitschko or, 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 or someone. In the fast food and Anthony Joshua or, or Wilder or Fury or Tyson Fury <laughs> drives up. That's that's what that was, and I'm like, whoa. And we just kind of reconnected. One thing led to another. What you doing in Philly? Yada, 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 yada. Stop by the gym. I went by the gym. And as the story went on, I went from visiting the gym to hanging out to the gym to hanging out with him. And we'd go out together. And every time we'd go out, he'd be pushing me in front of him. People would be mobbing him, and he'd be pushing me in front of him. And it got to a point where it got crazy because I was also still working as a salesman in the industry. I got to a point where I said to him, you know what? You have to do one of two things. You're going to have to leave me alone or hire me. (laughs) He told me to quit my job. True story. So I did. And I went to work for Smoking Joe Frazier. Were you with him now because of the dates that you said then? Were you with him? So you weren't with him when he fought Ali? That's when I met him in New York. That's what he was doing in New York. That was March, that was March 8th, 1971. I told you how time went by. Had time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I met him then. And and it was, it was not one of those things where we could have gotten together because he was so big and that was such a big fight, you know, and I was like a little spot in a glass of milk, you know, uh, with the mass of media, mass people around him. That was not a good time for us to get together. So we just kind of communicated. Uh, and I actually went, to, not went to the fight because back in those days, like today, you had fight parties, but you had legitimate fight parties. And that's how I saw that fight uh, on a fight party. And then afterwards, we talked once or twice and kind of talked and chatted a little bit. But he was always traveling one way and I was always traveling another way. But we kept communicating. And I'd say about 1979 or so, we stopped. It kind of lost a little until about two or three years later when I'm in Philly. and trying to get a limo for my niece's wedding and we met back up. You know, one of the things um like when I when I um speak to people, but it's a hard thing to say and I don't I don't want to make you blushy, but but um one of the one of the things like when I'm when I've been around people, one of the people that, you know, people go, Would you like to speak to whatever fighter or whatever? Honestly, one of the people that I wanted to I've always wanted to talk to the most has been you because um one I admire, I get a lot of inspiration from what you've done. Like and I also, because you are at least over 30, I don't know your whole age, but it must be, you must be over 30. And uh, I've always thought. <laughs> I'm, I'm 40 years over that, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always thought, man, this guy will have the best stories, like the best stories and the best, <laughs> the best life lessons, you know, like I, and I, I've always wanted to, to be able to have a proper conversation with you, but it was always in passing, you know, you always obviously directing yeah. the whole thing out yeah. the back and I was looking after the my fighters and that at the time. Um so man I I so so then how did you end up at the UFC with the UFC? Well, I I did I did 
I did fights and, and I and I tell the story almost in my sleep. You know, during my course of working with Joe and coordinating fights, I got to meet everybody. I got to work with everybody. I I I got to see and do things that I never thought would happen in my life. You know, I got to work with Don King. I got to work with Lou Duva. Uh, for those of you who are not who've not been in boxing, those are some of the biggest promoters that ever put on shows in boxing. And I ultimately, by working around those guys and Frank Warren, who most of you in North Europe know who Frank Warren is, getting to work around these guys, I got to meet a lot of people. From 19, I'll say, I'll throw a year out there. From 1984 to 1997, the only major name in boxing I never worked with was Lennox Lewis. That's everybody. That's Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield, Bernard Hopkins, uh, Roy Jones, Roberto Duran, Hector Camacho, Julio Cesar Chavez, Zab Judah, you name them. I, I've worked, the only person I've never worked with was Lennox Lewis. So I did, I did De La Hoya and Oscar. Sorry, you just cut out there, but you just cut out. Uh, am I in? You're in, you're in. You can see my mug too? Yeah, man. Okay. It, it, it was uh, one of those things where, where I did shows all over the United States and mainly in Vegas because all the big fights started working in Vegas and I was doing everything in Vegas. I actually did Tyson's last five fights uh, uh, as a coordinator, worked on his last five. I was doing a show in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand. And the guy who was promoting the fight uh, said to me, hey man, there's a guy out here in Vegas that's getting ready to start this, uh, this organization and he's looking for good people. And I suggested to him that he talks to you. So I'm in the middle of the fight, the way in. And after that, I said, you know what? Whoever the guy is, you know, before I leave here to go back to Philly, I'd meet him. So he said to me, I'll set up a meeting at the end of the day, which was the end of the way in, and we can sit and we can talk. At the end of the day, at the end of the way in, I'm in his office. He brings this guy in, and the guy was Dana White. That's crazy, eh? And so, you know, and I just said, I just said to him and the guy, listen, man, whatever happens to me, or whatever the situation is, as long as you pay me and respect me, you got me. Plain and simple. And that was for anybody and everybody. And at the time, Dana White was Dana White. Can you see that? The the thing you've frozen, but you've frozen again. Your screen is frozen. How about now? Still frozen. Now we're good. Okay. All right. So uh but I said Dana White was Dana White, not Dana White. I remember him back in the day, like when he oh, was yeah. like skinny he, he and was, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, but he 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 his name was that big. Yeah, his yeah, yeah. Now that big, you can't. That's how big his name is. It's off the screen. But you know what? He was he was cordial, and that was the conversation we had. 
You know, the fact that I was recommended to him from the person that I was recommended, he figured, you know, I, I, that I probably half-assed knew what I was doing, so he was going to give me the shot to do that. So he did. And he said, listen, man, you know, I got this thing coming up, and I'm trying to put it together, and, you know, but I need, I need good people. So, again, pay me and respect me, you got me. Did you think that the and, UFC would blow up the way it did? Well, no, I didn't know because my job was coordinating for anybody that hired me, anybody that, that, that brought me on, I went on and did their show because I learned the love to do it. And I, I, I've always liked doing it. I mean, it was, it, it's what I do. So when he brought me on and we started, you know, the first show I did with them was UFC 30. And that was in Atlantic City. I met him in 1999, and I think the first show was 2000 or maybe 2001. I'm a little foggy with the dates, but uh, that was that was. I met him in October, and he called me around December and said, "Listen, man, I got a show in February." I had nothing else, so I was like, "Shit, I'm good to go," you know. So February. He had he had he had the first show in Atlantic City, which for me was a breeze because I live in Philly, so it was a drive. And first show was UFC 30. By UFC 40, 41, I could see that it had legs. I could see the way the way it was being run, the the the, the people he was bringing around. Uh, the one thing that he never, Dana White never did to me was try to tell me how to do my job. Never. In fact, nobody's ever really tried to tell me how to do it, but always gave me the job to do. And I had to make the best of it. But I always wanted to make sure that that person wanted me to come back. So that meant me doing a good job, you know. But, but I got to see and work with the biggest promoters in the world. You know, I did Frank Warren's fight with Tyson and Lou Savarese in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, I did a show in Sydney. I don't remember the exact date, but I did shows for Frank Warren. But I could see just by the way that Dana was hiring people, the way he was putting things on, the tenacity he was using. And it was at a time where here in the States, Combat sports was not sanctioned by every state. So we could only go certain places. And the first place that we, that we were allowed to was the state of New Jersey. So the Athletic Commission allowed it to happen. And that was, that was one of the roadblocks we had in, in the growth of the UFC and mixed martial arts and combat sports was the different states' uh, athletic the athletic department accepting it and allowing it to happen. But he was tenacious. He just kept going. He kept going. He kept pushing. And I can see from that, because I know the only way you don't lose a job is if you do the job and you keep digging in that hole. You keep digging. You keep digging. And I can see that he was. So at that point, I could see that the UFC was getting legs. And, and, and places we were told that they didn't want us in, he didn't stop, 
and they kept trying and we finally got in. And it finally started moving around from state to state to state. And we went from, I think the first, first year, we did maybe five shows. Then it bumped up to 10 shows. Then it bumped up to 15 shows. When I, when I left, uh, and it's been almost five years now, we were up to about 37 shows for that year. That's incredible, eh? You know, at that, it was, I mean, from, but, but during the course of the growth and the, and the development, we improved on the production part of it, the production level, the television level. You know, everything, everything evolved at the same time. Uh, you know, you can do like, you know, right now I see you sitting in your studio. The lights look right. You know, and you. I see your little George, your little George TV in the back, you know. And I'm sure you set all that up. You got you got that white wall and the little pink is beaming off the white wall. Everything has to be set up, you know. And when your show gets bigger, you know, you shouldn't have to move to a bigger studio because your show got bigger. You should be able to handle the size of your growth with what you have. And that's what that's what what has happened. You know, it started growing and it started growing and it started getting bigger and it started getting more popular. And one of the things that was one of the keys to the success of it was that, and as I said, I came from, from boxing at a high level. You know, when I worked with guys like Mike Tyson and De La Hoya and Roy Jones and Roy Jones and Mike getting ready to fight again. Who you got in that? Jeez, I'm getting, Who you got? I'm getting all, you know what? Whoever takes the first, the first punch, that's the end of it. Do you reckon Roy has the, the, the pop? Still today to stop Tyson coming forward, he can. I, I think I think he I think he does. I mean, Roy has been boxing. I think Roy's last fight was maybe a year ago, year and a half or so. Uh, so it's not as if he's he hasn't been in the ring now for five or ten years. I don't think Tyson has been in in competition for about that long. Yeah, it's yeah. been it's been a while. You know, and, you know, we, we, we keep, I, I won't say we keep forgetting because I can't question somebody's knowledge, but I'll say let us not forget that Roy Jones went from middleweight, super middleweight to heavyweight champion of the world. He beat, I think it was John Ruiz. Yeah, Ruiz. Heavyweight. I remember you know, that. I remember that. Legitimately, legitimately. So he knows how to do that. He knows how to carry the weight, you know, and 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 his even even at a smaller guy, he was always good at keeping guys off of him, keeping guys off of him. And it's not as if he's in there with a guy that's twenty years younger than he is, you know. He's got a guy that that you know is the same age, and one of Tyson's. Tyson had a problem with guys that ran from him and could keep him off. Tyson, Tyson, he overwhelmed his people. You know, he just when when the bell rang, he he overwhelmed them. And that with the power that he had, you know, once a guy got hit, 
You know, Larry Holmes kept him off for a little bit, you know, and couldn't do it. Evander Holyfield fought the same type of fight that he did. So it was it was kind of even there. I, I don't know whatever kept Evander Holyfield up aside from him just having a good chin. But he but he did. Uh, but I think that 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 Roy Jones will will be able to keep him off, keep Tyson off of him. They're using 12 ounce gloves and they're only going to fight eight rounds. So I think both of them are bringing the same stool into the ring, if I could say. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, 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 it's that kind it's that kind of situation. Did they say that the rounds are going to be shorter too? Two minute rounds? Did you hear that? Oh, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear. I just heard that they're, they're using twelve ounce gloves, and that uh, they're only fighting eight eight rounds. Which, <laughs> which you know, it'll be it'll be it'll be interesting. You know, uh, I don't I don't remember if Roy Jones had a chin or not. I don't don't remember that because he rarely he rarely got hit. I was about to say, yeah, I haven't really seen Roy take a lot on the chin in his in his peak. Like he was right because he, he rarely got hit. He knew he knew how to dance around and control the ring and to keep people off off of them. Uh, and what I was saying to you was that right now we're talking about Roy Jones and Mike Tyson. You know, back in the day when I worked with those guys when they were at their peak. Professional boxing, you know, if you saw a guy like Mike Tyson or Roy Jones or Bernard Hopkins or Oscar De La Hoya out someplace, you couldn't get near them for security. And that was just the way it was. You couldn't you couldn't touch them. You know, if, if a guy like Tyson or, or, or Holderfield or somebody was walking down the street or whatever, you know, as a fan, as the average fan, rarely could you ever touch them or get close to them. You know, there were times that I did fights, you know, on a, on a for for HBO or Showtime, you know, as a coordinator. And I'm always the guy behind the scenes. So very few people got to see me. But there were times when I was out front. If a guy didn't know me, I didn't get to the fighters, you know, and I had to identify myself. The point I'm trying to make, you had asked me about the success of the UFC and MMA. The difference was that when Chuck Liddell or Anderson Silva or Randy Couture or George St. Pierre came for fight week, if there was a fan standing next to him, that fan could reach out and touch him and shake his hand. Or that fan could get a photo or get an autograph. You know, Dana never kept the fighters away from the fans, which I think was probably one of the best things he ever did because it gave the fan an opportunity to touch a superstar, you know, and, and, and they started that way and it was always that way. You know, one of the hardest things was keeping them fans away from the fighters because we ingratiated them and we let the fighters go, you know, and the fans, anytime they saw me, they would follow me because they knew at the end of my journey, there was going to be a fighter. <laughs> <laughs> there was going to be somebody there wherever I was going. Sometimes I'd just be going to the elevator 
And I'd walk past and I'd look to the left and I could see them in the back, you know, group ahead, follow behind me because they figured I was going to see somebody, you know, but. I want to, I want to ask you, I was like, you know, in the nineties and that I was say from 13 to 18, you know, 98, I was 18. Through that period, Tyson was fucking huge, like huge, 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 huge. Can you, yes, you and you were in and around that you worked five Tyson fights that you said, can yes, you tell us the magnitude of the biggest Tyson fight versus the biggest UFC fights that you've worked? Because you've worked the biggest of the biggest UFC fights. Yes. Can you, yes. can you tell us the, the, the magnitude, the essence be, of those type of fights in comparison? Well, well, at, at that level, when you have all of the ambiance around it, you know, it starts with, you know, the fighters' arrivals. It's all always grand and a lot of media and a lot of people around. Very few, very few fans, you know, in boxing, very few fans. In MMA, it was always a lot of fans. But there was always a lot of energy and always a lot of people and always a lot of media around. And, 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 and that, made, that made for a lot, a lot of chaos, you know. Uh, and, and I think one of the – I did – I think the first fight I did with Mike was actually here in Philadelphia when he fought Buster Mathis Jr., at the uh, what is now the Wells Fargo, which probably held about ten or fifteen thousand people, uh, then I, I did Tyson in Glasgow in a, in a sport arena, and it rained like hell, but it was still people were out there jammed, and and I actually walked Mike from the dressing room to the ring. They had him under two umbrellas, and we had to put black bags around his feet. So he wouldn't walk in the mud and the water to get to to the ring because the ring was under a canopy. Uh, but the, the 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 electricity was unbelievable. The fans were unbelievable. Uh, it, it was and when, when you're actually involved in it and you're trying to control that. You 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 don't realize the magnitude of it until you're actually sitting in an arena and you're sitting back and you're watching and you're looking at it. You know, because you're running back and forth all night. I think comparison to that, the, the, the biggest event I ever did with UFC was we did a fight with George St. Pierre. And I'm brain farting because I don't remember exactly who he fought. But it was at the Rogers Arena in, in Canada. And it had 55,000 people in there. And that was crazy. That was, that was, that was unbelievable. I'm just it looking so it up now. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. It was so huge that to get from one dressing room to another, I had to actually, I used a golf cart to, 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 to get me around from one end of the arena to the other end because it was so huge and it was so massive. Was when, that the when Jake Shields fight? And was it at the Rogers Arena? I believe so. Yeah, yeah, that was it then. Okay, that was it. It was, it was, it was huge. Uh, I did a fight in London with Michael Bisping. It was his first fight in his hometown, and 
the dressing rooms were under the stands and the stands were made of steel, kind of like a, a thin tin steel. So you could hear the fans thumping on the ground and it, it echoed down the hall, man. It was, it was, it was, it gave me chills. I knew what it would probably do to the fighters, but you know, I always managed to get in the fighters head and his eyes between the dressing room and the cage or the boxing ring. Did you, what about the, like the big McGregor events and that? Did you work with, did you, you work them as well? Yes. You were still with the UFC yes. at the time. How did yes. they compare yes. to, to those big shows? Uh, I, McGregor was starting to get steam. He was starting to, to, to steam up and, 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 and get the reputation that he did. But, you know, I mean, I went through George St. Pierre. I went through Anderson Silva. I went through UFC 100. I went through Brock Lesnar, you know, and comparatively, they all were, were on the same level. They were huge. They were huge fights. The, the, the crowd was unbelievable. When we started doing our weigh-ins in the arena for fans, you know, and started putting guys on center stage, man, that, that, and bigger and bigger and the fans, more fans started coming in. Uh, and it was, it was huge. Uh, I left in 2015, 20, yeah, 2015 or so. Uh, McGregor, by that time, had, I think he had his, third fight or fourth fight, you know, he was still on the undercard, but he was on his, he was on his way because he had, he had more mouth than anybody else. You know, he was, he was always animated. What you see of him now, he, he has grown and has grown into that person. But, you know, it's like when College coaches get athletes. They know the ones that are going to go to the pros. They can, they can, they can, they can tell right away the skill levels. This was, this one's going to go, you know. And I could tell from the beginning that he was, he was going to go, because very few guys in 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 MMA uh, or UFC was talking smack. Very, very, very few of them, you know, it didn't, it, 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 it wasn't conducive. It didn't seem like it was conducive to MMA initially because there weren't a lot of, there weren't a lot of smack talkers. They were, they were, they were not really animated. I mean, you had guys like the Diaz brothers who were just straight up street guys. Yeah. And that worked. They weren't even talking smack though. They were just being no, themselves. no. Right, just being themselves. Like I said, they were straight up street guys, and I can say that because I'm a hood rat, you know. But 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 you had guys was like you had guys like George Saint Pierre that was low key, and 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 still the the amount of fans and and the raise that that they got was unbelievable. Anderson Silva was quiet and low key, spoke English when he wanted to, but 
He was huge, you know. Uh, so it was very. Now you're frozen. <laughs> there you go. It was very few guys that was talking smack, and you know, not everybody knows how to talk smack. You know, it's it's you don't learn how to how to talk smack. It's 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 about as natural as you don't learn how to fight. You got something in you that needs to be trained and honed and skilled, you know, and it was there, you know, and and he honed it and skilled it. And quite frankly, the UFC never put a lid on any of its fighters. It never tried. It never. We had rules. You know, I think the biggest ass was me. OK, if, if anybody, if anybody put smack down on or put rules on it was myself. And somebody had to do it because, you know, these were professional athletes. They were professional fighters. And if there weren't rules and regulations, you know, they'd be all over the place, you know, and, and they'd be all over the place quickly. So can you elaborate you know, on I that? Can you, friends. can you elaborate on what that means? Like, so the UFC didn't have like a code of conduct for the fighters. You were the one that put those things in place. And can you speak well, to what those things were? Well, no, I didn't say they didn't have a code of conduct. There was a code of conduct, but I said they didn't put restrictions on a guy. Like they didn't tell a guy you couldn't say this at a press conference. Or they didn't tell a guy you couldn't bring, you know, your family with you to an event or 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 you couldn't travel with this, with these many people or things like that, you know, or this person wasn't allowed in or something like that. They never, they never did that. Uh, uh, they kind of let the fighters be themselves. You know, whatever his personal thoughts were, they never said, you can't express that here. You know, guy, if a guy would come in during the course of the week wearing his cultural garb or whatever it was, whatever he brought to the table, that's what, that's what they, they let him be himself until it was time to step into that cage. Then he had to become a fighter. So they never, they never, you know, had any kind of those restrictions on the guy. Myself, the restrictions, you know, I had, you know, like, like I believed in making weight, being on time. Those two things to me were, I was adamant about that. And it was tough. I mean, guys came in the, 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 the week of the fight needing to lose. 15 pounds. Now, I'm a guy that came from boxing. I've seen them call off boxing events because a guy was four pounds over or five pounds over. I've never seen, I had never, before MMA, I had never seen a guy lose 12 pounds in a week or come in needing to lose 15 pounds. But it was very common, and everybody kept saying to me, oh, they're wrestlers. You'll get to know that. You'll get to understand that. And I, I could never understand it. So I said, you know what? I can't understand it. So I'm going to put it in here that I'm not happy with that. So and working with the guys, I let them know, you know, I'd get a car. I get the bout sheet on who was fighting yeah. and I'd call them. Yo, what's up, baby? Uh, just so you know, I'm going to be there when you get there on Tuesday. How, that, how, how, how you looking? They knew that meant how that weight was looking. Oh, right now, Mr. Burke, I'm at. You know, like, like he was fighting 
170. Right now, I'm at, I'm at like, like about 88, 89. Say, so, all right, got some work to do. Don't be messing around with me when you come on site, okay? <laughs> you know, I had that kind of conversation. And pretty soon the word got out on that. Guys would show up and, you know, I checked their weights. I always made sure that I had certified scales for them to check their weights, to make sure that it was right on and solid. And, uh, you know, I just had to get in their heads that, that you got to make weight. You got to be on time, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to do everything in my power to respect you. And I'm never going to let anybody else disrespect you, but I'm not going to let you disrespect me either. I can mess, I can mess with you, but they can't mess with you. That's the kind of situation that I tried to create and put in their head that, you know, whatever I did or said to them, I meant it from here. And I always said to fighters, you know, I've had conversations with guys that I had to, I had to do this all myself, you know, I'm like, whoa, but I had to listen because that's kind of the, the way I created the situation to them and for them was that, you know, I mean, I've worked with you before. I don't know how close, you know, but, but, but I always worked with them close enough to have them get a comfort level to feel that whatever they brought, they could put in my head. The, the only thing with, uh, I think the, not, not even a running, I never had a running with you, but cause I was always with, with Rob and, um, uh, he always he cut a fair bit of weight, and I think one of the first times that we dealt with each other as well, because he's a, I think he'd gone up to middleweight, and people don't really realize how big he is. Like they think he's a small middleweight, right. and I remember. Oh, I realized. Yeah, but I remember him stepping on the scales, like we, because we got there early. We always got there early because we had to travel, uh -huh. and uh -huh. you were like, "Man, is this guy going to be all right with his weight?" And I remember you you took me aside and go, "No, is he going to be all right?" And I was like, "No, no, he's." 100% is going to be all right, you know, because he, he's a big boy, you know what I mean? And a lot of people don't oh, yeah. don't think that until oh, yeah. they see him. And he's he's got a, he had a fair bit of weight, but he he actually makes it pretty easily the weight. But um, but you were you were you were probably one of the nicest because most guys are not that nice when they come at me like that, you know. Oh, are people rude to you? Are, are people rude to you in general? Not 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 rude to a point of disrespect. I've, I've, I've been disrespected once, once, and maybe, you know, I won't tell you who it was, but once I was disrespected by a guy and I went to Joe Silva and Dana and told him I was done with that guy. And that guy had one fight there. <laughs> so, you know, but no, they wouldn't, they would never, I mean, but see, they knew. So they would say, we, we told you, don't worry about it. We tell you not to worry about it. And I would say to them, you telling me not to worry about it is about as much as you talking to my you-know-what. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't yeah. worry about yeah, it, yeah. you yeah. know, because honestly, boss, I didn't know. I, you know, I came from a boxing background. So I didn't know wrestlers cut that kind of weight, knew how to cut weight, and they knew how. I just knew that... A the fight was a week away, and this guy was 12 or 13 pounds over. And I can tell you, I've seen as much as 21 pounds. 
Now, I'm not gonna mention no names, <laughs> but I've 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 seen them that heavy in a week. Yeah, man. And and it would be the, the thing is uh, at the end of the day, of course you're gonna be worried because if people start missing weight, it reflects on you. You know what I mean? They're gonna, oh, what did you tell me? You know? So yeah, oh, oh, let me tell you something. I think in my in, in the first person that missed weight on me was Travis Luter. Fuck against Anderson. Yes. First person. And he was he was like maybe five pounds, four or five pounds. And I said, never, ever, ever again. <laughs> okay. Will I let that happen to me? But I didn't let it happen to me. He just he ran out of gas, man. He just couldn't couldn't go anymore. And and I had a scale in the in and I ran with him, but he just he just couldn't go anymore. He looked like he was gonna die before that. Oh well he passed out. He passed out. He actually sat down because he came right from the steam room downstairs and he sat down in the back and when he sat down he just kind of slumped over, man. But you're probably the first person that's hearing that. Cause I never said that to anybody. You know, <laughs> but but the worst thing in the world was because you know that on that stage, at that scale, it was always me, Dana, and the commission. So Dana never looked at me, really, unless somebody wasn't on weight. And the first person he looked at was me. <laughs> never know what that stare was, you know, because, and then when it was holding the towel, it was me and him. And he'd look down at the weight and he'd look up at me, you know. And with that Travis Luter, I said, you know what? He will never look at me like that again. So I clamped down harder on the guys. You know, I would check their weight and I would check their weight. You know, when they came in during the course of the week, I'd call them on the phone. I'd meet me down the room, baby. I'm going to check their weight. Or I'd show up in the workout room and I would check the weight. You know, always. Always, I was always on them. I could tell you that in my 14 years, or 15, 14, 15 years that I worked, I, I think maybe, I had maybe three, four people that that that, that missed weight. I was on it, bro. I was on it. Oh, you definitely were. I, I, I have to say, you definitely were. But see, I never took it. Um, nor nor did any other guys from from our group like. We never took it. Who's another guy that I knew as well that that uh, always spoke? Uh, James Tahuna. Do you remember? Do you, know, do you remember? Yeah. That? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was about him and his brothers. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're yeah, good guys, yeah, you know. Yeah. And they, we'd always like the same thing. Like he he spoke about you, but it was never a thing. Um, I never took it. Like I always took it as you were doing your job. Like I never thought. Right. And and if anything, I was like, fuck. At least somebody's checking the weights because. Some, some like exactly what you said, and I'm not going to name them. I'd watch people cut weight and think, dude, you got to fight. You look like you're going to fucking die. You don't you? Don't look like you should even get in the cage. Don't even worry about that. Like, and so I, I say that to say this: Did you at any stage, say during the Travis Luter weight cut, was there ever a point in you that you started to get like scared, like thinking, like, hold on a second, what's going on here? What if this guy dies? I'm here. 
Because you can die cutting weight. People have died yeah, cutting oh, weight. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Was oh, there yeah, a moment yeah, where yeah, you got, there. like, scared? Uh, for Travis Luter, not, not really because I knew that he was trying. And I knew that he was doing the right things during the course of the week. Sometimes I see guys come in. When they get off the plane and they come to me, the first thing I did was put you up, put you guys on the scale. Before you even filled out paperwork or even went into the office, I took you and your luggage to a room and checked the weights. So I always did that. And sometimes the guy, when I, when I, I'd see him on, on, I got there on a Sunday, fighters came in on Tuesday. I'd see him on a Tuesday, the fight was Saturday. So I see him on Wednesday, I'd go past the, whatever the restaurant is, he's sitting there eating the meal, <laughs> you know? So I'd walk in the restaurant and give him the little, the little side eye. You know, I know damn well you're not sitting here wolfing that stuff down. <clears throat> and I saw that weight, you know? So I would check during the course of the week. So I was always, always, I'd go step by step. And every time I looked up, Travis was either on that, on the treadmill, in the sauna, or working out. So I knew that he was trying. So, but if I saw a guy not, like I saw him on Monday and saw him Tuesday eating a cheeseburger and some french fries, and then Friday morning he hustling his ass off to cut weight because I had, you know, now if you watch the weigh-ins, the weigh-ins are now earlier. They yeah. do that early weight cut. I started that. That that early because every weigh-in day, they were on the scale by three o'clock in the afternoon. Every weigh-in day from eight o'clock to eleven, I had the scale available to check everybody's weight. If somebody wanted me down there seven o'clock in the morning, I was down there seven o'clock in the morning to check their weight because I knew the guys were struggling. The guys were tough. Chuck Liddell. Chuck Liddell came in one day. Uh, and 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 it was fight day. And he ran into me about 8:30 in the morning. When I say ran into me, I'm in I'm in the arena with the scale, and I do their gloves and I put them on the scale. I check their gloves, make sure their gloves are fit. I roll their gloves up, put them in a bag, write their names on them, put them away for the next day. He came down with the towel around his neck and the warm-up suit and the gloves, and the, he was sweating. And he came down to see me about, I'd say about 8.30, quarter to nine. And he, at that time, I think was about six, seven pounds to go. Maybe about six. And he left me running around the top of the arena. And this was at the MGM where you could run up around, up and down the step. He ran from the time he left me to the time he got on that scale at 2.30. Whoa. And when he, Whoa. Got, when he got on that, and, and I saw him. Because during the course of the day, I'm in and out of that room. My scale's in there, and I got security. If I had to pay for extra security to watch that scale so nobody touched it, I did that. Because once I locked it down, it was locked down, baby. But then back then, earlier, we had the meat scale that had the weights. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I take yeah, yeah, yeah. I take them weights off and take them to my room, <laughs> so they couldn't touch the scale. 
But I knew he ran until it was time for the weigh-in. And when he came in that room, he was running. He was still running. He was still running. He stopped. He stepped on that scale, got up there and wiped himself off. And we had to hold the towel, but he made he made weight. But I've seen I've seen that, you know, I finally, you know, I never got used to it. I never stopped fussing about it or bringing it up because weight cut is hard and dangerous. And these guys cut a lot of weight. The average guy could not cut 10 pounds in a week or 15. I told you the most I ever saw was 20, 21. I lied. 25 was the biggest I've ever seen anybody. That's a lot of weight. And I've seen that how, done. How heavy was the guy that cut 25 in a week? Oh, he, he, he had to fight at 205. So you, you take it from there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, had to, he had to fight at 205. Now, I know you're probably trying to go through your roller deck. No, 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 no. It's not, that's not why I say it because, um, like, say, for example, 25 pounds is, is a lot for anyone, but for a 205er, it's one thing. But you got, like, flyweights that are cutting 15 pounds, and that's more compared to their body weight. You know? Oh, yeah. That, that, oh, that's yeah. why I was a saying guy, it. A, a guy at 205 can walk around at 230. Yeah. Walks around at 2.30, maybe 2.35 or something like that. And eventually, when he gets closer to a fight, he starts cutting down. But then you got a guy that weighs, the guy that fights at 155 or fights even at 170. When they're not fighting. Sorry, you cut out a and, second. Then. And oh. that's a tough, that's a tough weight cut. You, you, Am you I just, in? Yeah, yeah, you're in. You're in. I should be good to go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, at 155, you know, from 135 to 155, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's hard for those guys to cut 10 pounds in the course of a week. That's, that's a lot. 10 or 12 pounds, that's a, that's a lot. You know, when you get to 170 and up, those guys walk around a lot heavier anyway. You know, and it just it it seems it seems like they they cut weight easier. I'm I'm gonna mention one name to you. Uh I'll mention two names to you. You know. Uh Gleason Tabal oh. and Dennis Seaver. You yeah. know, those guys used to cut in one day, in one day, it was nothing to cut eight, nine pounds. You know, I'd see them in the morning and I would say, but then they would leave me and go right to the sauna and right to the workout room and, and, and not leave until it was time to come to see me again at the weigh-in. And those were, the, those were probably about the only two guys that I would see with that kind of weight and not worry because I got used to them as time went on. But Gleason but, looked like you a... You know, other guys? Gleason, Gleason looked like a middleweight. You know what I mean? When he was that lightweight. Like, if you yeah, just saw yeah, him walking yeah, around, he yeah, looked like, yeah. like like a middleweight. He was huge. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. He, you know, and, and, and so for him, I, I don't... Well, I, I, won't, I won't say easy because... 
you know, I know some of the things they did to cut that weight, you know, uh, which wasn't an easy thing to do. But in one, you know, in, in one day, you know, him and, and Dennis Seaver, I mean, they were masters at it. They were masters at cutting that weight and, and how they did it. But that's kind of how they trained to do that. Uh, and I, I actually saw Dennis cut his weight, saw how he cut his weight. And when I say saw, you know, he'd come see me at, at nine. I'd have that scale from eight o'clock in the morning till 11, you know, and I would find him about 11, 30, 12 o'clock. And he'd be in that room with his trainer in the sauna. That sauna would be jammed, would be crowded. And I always went in there because I knew that my guys were going to be in that sauna and were going to take it over. So I would go to the hotel and I would tell them, you know, that listen, you know, Friday morning or tomorrow morning, my guys are going to be in there. And, you know, if you can, you know, I, I'm letting you know now so it doesn't become a problem. So they were, they were prepared. But I used to do that when we would check into a hotel, I would, I would be the first one on site every fight. Wherever we went, I was always the first one on site. If we had a fight on Saturday, I got there the Sunday before. And I would start my groundwork and start finding out where the grocery stores are and start finding out where the hospital is and start mapping out how we would get back and forth to the hospital. I personally did that because I never wanted to have anything that would obstruct us from getting from the arena to the hospital if we had to and if we had to do it quickly. And I did that drill through traffic and, and found ways without traffic and made sure the van was parked at a certain place. And, you know, the ambulance was parked at a certain place and the grocery store was a certain place. And, the, you know, the, the just things that they needed. I did the groundwork. So when I did all that groundwork and I would do the run to every one of those places. So I knew the time it would take with or without traffic. And that's for every little detail, you know, grocery store, pharmacy run, sauna, anything that they needed. I had it set up and had it timed out. The last thing I would do once I had all that situated and set up was I would go to the hotel and I would talk to them and they would talk to me because I had the master listing for the rooms and had the rooms all set up. And I saw where every guy was. I also made sure that the rooms were right. Okay, I didn't have I didn't have uh, uh, Jake Shields and George Saint Pierre of course, yeah. next to each other. <laughs> okay, and and so I I went through the rooming list. They gave me a room. I asked them for a rooming list before everybody checked in. They gave it to me, and they showed me where everybody was, and I just made sure, you know. And after I had that meeting with them, I would tell them that call me before you call the cops. And he would sit back and look at me and wonder what I meant, okay? I meant just what I said. Call me before you call the cops. If you got a problem in this hotel with anybody or any of my guys, please call me first. Because a lot of guys, a lot of, you know, people were, they didn't, they didn't understand fighters or didn't understand how they cut weight or what they were doing and, found a lot of things and, and if they didn't understand the first thing they did was security 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the cops. Yeah, yeah. And I told him, before you call the cops or before you call security, call me. And here's my cell number. Or I'd be in my room. And for the most part, they did that. I always got the first phone call. But I want to ask you something, and it's pertinent to what you just said then. I'm I'm curious, because I want to get into a bit of your mindset and get into how your that mind of yours works, you know? So you've dealt with... Good luck. Yeah. I've dealt with a lot of... Um, I see that you've dealt with a lot of like big egos, big, you know, conflicting egos, even if they're not conflicting with you, but they're conflicting with each other right. and with other people. Right. How how do you balance that? Like what's your mindset going into that? How do you balance that? Uh, when you've had situations where you've clashed or where people are clashing, even if they're not with you, how how have you dealt with that? Not necessarily how did you avoid it or how magnificent you are, I'm more curious as to how you know when things go bad because we can yes, all we yes. can all do it when it goes well. I want to know yes when it goes bad. Well, the first thing I tried to do, boss, is to make sure that everybody around me had a comfort level with me. That everybody, anybody around me, had a comfort level that I was going to take care of them. And I was going to look out for them. And that if I told them something or told them to do something or directed them to something or someplace, it was right. And it was spot on. And that they never had to worry about it. And that they would never have to come back to me and tell me I was wrong about something. That was tough to do. And that was the toughest part of my job was to kind of make sure I was right first. And once I got that, once I got that comfort level, and I did that just as we are doing now. Right, right. You know, I right. talked to them eye to eye, and and I got that level, and and I got to a point where anybody that 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 I worked with, and I gave them that comfort level, if they didn't see it any place else, they told other people about it. So when people came to me, they kind of knew how I was going to handle things. So when I got that comfort level and, 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 and with the grace of God and, and, and my faith and the hard work I put in, I got that comfort level with everybody, just about everybody. So with that comfort level, they all listened. And, 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 and I think I let, them, I let them know how old I was first, okay? I'm you. I'm not your brother, uh, I'm not your buddy, I'm your dad, okay? So let's start with that, all right? That's where, that's, that's the level that we're on. So I'm gonna keep the respect level there and you give it back to me the same way. And that's the way, that's the way I, I didn't say it that way. Some guys I said it like that, but, but I, wanted, I wanted to make them feel that so that they talk to me and they listen to me. There are some people that you hear, but you don't listen. Yeah. I wanted them to hear me and listen to me and get a comfort level that when I said something to them, it was going to be spot on. I'm not going to tell them you got a scale in that room that's 100% accurate in that room is at 72 degrees. I knew how hot that room had to be for these guys. I didn't want them to go in that room and the scale wasn't working and it was cold. And they come back to me and like, but 
I go to my room, the mats are not down, the room's dirty, the scale's not right, the temperature's not right, that's not gonna happen. So I kind of, you know, give them that comfort level. There was, and, 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 and I wanted everybody around them to get that comfort level. Like I said to you, I told them, I can mess with you, but I'm not gonna let you, I'm not gonna let them mess with you. I had a situation where the fighters wanted to, uh, bring some water or something else they had at a way in and they were and the state commission came to them and said you can't do that so i politely asked him if i could talk to him a minute and i pulled him to a side and i talked to him and i told him listen you know i'm gonna have to take i'm gonna have to take the bullet for that because i already told these guys that they can if you can work with me i'll control it as much as i can but you know, I've already told them that it was that this was okay. You know, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but he also felt comfortable enough with me to say, "Okay, but going forward." So I had I I, I squashed that, and the guys were comfortable to continue what they were doing. But I also knew that it wasn't anything that was a detriment to them making weight, a detriment to them. You know. Uh, Fight night, like for example, I didn't I, I I didn't want them drinking coffee, fight night, or having coffee or soda in the dressing room. Now that may sound well, not to you because you're you're a trainer. You know what it is. You know it was just certain things that I knew that I would tell the guys in a talk when I sit and talk to them before the fight that you know I, I laid out my rules for the dressing rooms for the workout rooms for how many people you have in the dressing room, on the ring walk, this you can do, this you can't do, what time you got to be in the dressing room, what you can bring in the dressing room, you know, no food. That, I mean, just certain things like that that I laid out from the beginning so that when it came time to do it, it wasn't the first time they heard it. I wanted to make sure that whatever they heard, it wasn't a surprise to them because, you, you know, fighters and trainers are – that's a whole different breed of people, man. You know, if you don't if you don't give it right and they lose one inch of confidence in what you say or what you can do, you're done. You know what the thing is as well, because it's such a high pressure situation that everybody's looking as well. If things go bad, how can I not everyone's like this, but a lot of people are like this. How can I already start laying the groundwork? to blame someone other than me. Do you know what I mean? Like, who who else 100%. can I blame? I want to blame Bert. That's the guy to blame. The UFC, the, you know, so it's exactly that as well with, with the trainers. That way, and the fighters as well. You know, you hear fighters after a fight, you know, when they, when they lose, it's because I was injured or a, whatever. But when they win, they don't care if the other guy was injured. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. But you also, you know, you also had to make sure that those things, you know, and, and I had a mental checklist in my head. And, you know, everyone, every time a fighter or somebody came in to me, I had a conversation with them and I talked to them and I listened. Nothing anybody said was irrelevant. I don't care what they said. I listened to everything and I digested everything, you know, down to at a point of 
assigning workout rooms. I had to get to know what trainer didn't like this trainer or what fighter that trained in that gym and doesn't want to go in that workout room because he just left that gym. I had to know that. So I had those kind of conversations to get that and to hear that. And I made it very public what I was intending on do because I put signs up. And right away, a guy see it, you know, and and I had a guy once to say, oh, man, I see the name on that. He saw a name up there. Uh, is this my workout room? So yeah, he said, nah. And I asked him why. And he told me. That was the last time that happened. From that point on, it was a list. And it's the same thing, you know, I learned it. I, and, I, and I learned how to do it because it was also very important, especially fight night in the dressing room. Can you imagine putting two guys in the dressing room that don't like each other or who's going to fight that guy or who, or who just fought that guy and lost? So I had to figure it out because very, very, not very often did I have dressing rooms big enough to put red corner, blue corner. I always had to, I always had to dissect it. So I had to know, boss, what I was doing, you know, and I did that by listening. I listened to everybody. I looked at everybody. I figured out, figured it out during the course of the week. Some things I had to flip around the day before, but by the, by the time it came to dressing room, I never had to switch the dressing room around, ever. Never had to switch the dressing room. Because you already guys, knew by the time I, it got there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. By that time, I got there. And and things I'm saying now, I, I've, I've, I've figured it out after having done that so long and doing it so often. And now I'm sitting back and I'm seeing things. You know, I'm seeing how things are going. I know the last fight they had four, four people that didn't make weight. Or five... I would have had, I, I would have died. <laughs> well, first of all, I don't think I would have ever had that many people not make weight. But I, I tell the, you, you know, I, I can tell you this, like it, it was different after you left. Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to shit on the guy that, you know, the guys no, that had to, no. because in fairness to you, in fairness to them, you had very big shoes to fill because you had a long time to, and you got a perfect, you know, and it's probably not even that guy's fault. You know what I mean? Because I'm sure it no, wasn't him I that said, it. "Let's get rid of Bert." You no. know what I mean? No, but it no, wasn't no, the no. same. I, I kept control. I kept control of it, and you know, quite frankly, right now, I think during the course of my years, I think I brought on maybe between the United States and Asia and the UK, I think I brought on a total of thirty guys on all those states to work with me. And I think now today there might be 15 of them still there that are still working or, or so that are still working. So a lot of what went on, I kept control of and I gave the guys that worked with me what I needed to help me balance things out, you know, and the balance control of it. Because, you know, it, it, it's, it's also one of them things. I've seen fighters where a commission person go up to them and say, hey, I want you to do this. And they give them that look like, what the hell are you talking about? They use a different word. But yeah, the yeah. look they gave them was like, yeah, you're out of your mind. Or, or, or how dare you talk to me like that? 
but you know what? That that's just something that 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 I, as time went by, you know, I first of all learned to respect the fighters and the trainers, and what they did, and I showed them that I respected that, you know, immensely. But to give that back to me is just to kind of make my life easy. That if we got a we got a process and a system, let's just go through it because I'm gonna get you here and I'm gonna get you out of here, and I'm gonna get you out of here, maybe a little better because you're gonna leave here with a little bit of money in your pocket. But I'm gonna get you from there to there, and 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 but I need you, I need you to work with me. And they did, man. You know, it, it's I I have I can honestly tell you that when I came into MMA, the guys that I met. And the people that I've worked with, man, made, it wasn't easy, you know, but I was on it. But they made it easy because they listened. They respected me, you know. I mean, and, and I sit back now. Now I, I, I do a podcast now. I'm, I'm, I'm advertising my own self. Please right advertise as much as you possibly can. <laughs> you know. I, I do I do a podcast called Legends to Legend. Yeah, I'm aware of it, hundred percent. And and I I sit with guys who are who have who are no longer one guy who's still doing it, but I sit with guys and I talk to them, and I have it's it, it, it's an OG chatter. I sit and have it's not an interview. We have a conversation about the old times and the old days and what we went through and how we went through it. And I sit and ask them questions, and I let them ask me questions. Whatever it is, baby, there's nothing off limits. And I sit and I, I talk with these guys, man, and I learn so much now even, you know, with these guys, you know. And I, I do that I do that show on MMA Junkie, uh, and I just did one with Randy Couture. And I, I actually had... The shows that I've done, I did Chael Sonnen first and I did Randy Couture. You know, I had conversation with these guys that, that you know, I'm not a, a host. You know, I don't do what you do. Uh, and and I, I, I know how to stay on the fence. But the conversation that I have with these guys, man, it's legitimately a conversation of, of things that I've been through with them, things that I know. You know, you know having a conversation with Randy Couture. In my lifetime, I've had the privilege and the grace of God to bless me with having been around long enough to work with Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. And I also worked with Muhammad Ali's daughter and Joe Frazier's daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked yeah. with Layla Ali and, and I worked with Jackie, Joe's daughter, and I did the fight between them two. How blessed is that, man? I That's did the insane. Fight and do the and moving on, moving on to Randy because I I I did Rand I worked with Randy's son, Ryan. And yeah, yeah. So to work with Randy and his son and to sit and have a conversation with him about the times that we worked and and the stuff that I laid down and he was telling me the one thing he told his son was when Bert tells you something you need to listen. Okay, and it was you know it was kind of surreal to, to, to have that conversation because that's the third time in my career 
that I that I'd ever that I had ever done that with. I almost did it with with Sugar Ray. Sugar Ray had a son, uh, Sugar Ray Sugar Ray Leonard, you know, but his son didn't ended up not fighting, you know. Uh, I worked with uh, Hector Camacho Macho Time and his son, but it, and his son is now fighting. But I didn't work with them, with them at the same time because the son was a little too young, but. You know, I do that show and legends to legends. And, you know, I talk to the guys and, you know, I'm working on right now the second segment of it. Uh, and uh, it's 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 fun, man. It's really good to sit and talk to these guys that I've actually worked with. And I can have a conversation of something that, that I know. And. And you're, you you have such a wealth of knowledge and so many stories. It's, it's just, you know, I, I'm, re I'm really enjoying it. I just want to ask a few questions to you because um, you've been very generous with your time. And I, I, what's your your greatest failure slash setback? But not necessarily am I saying it from like, it has to, like, it, it probably was a negative at the time, but what's your favorite setback? Like when you look back and you go, I'm glad that I went through that horrible time. And what was the renaissance that came from that? Well, you know, there was there was a, a, a period when I didn't really know what I wanted to do, you know, because as I told you, I was in the fashion industry. You know, I was headed for the runway, okay? You know, and, and the transition from fashion to combat sports, that's, you know, and so I was, I was kind of in a, in, a, in a position where I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And I left New York and from New York to Philadelphia. And at the time, I had kids, you know, so I had to, I had to make up my mind. And, and make adjustments. And, you know, that was a time that, that, that I, I kind of second guessed myself, you know, and was wondering why I made certain decisions. But, you know, as I went along, I learned how kids grow up and they follow you. And my kids are now grown and I got grandchildren and I got five, five grandchildren. So awesome. My, my oldest grandson just graduated from Yale Whoa. Uh, and, and also played football there, you know, and, and I got the second one that's on her way there. And so it, it, it kind of, it, it turned out, it turned out all right. Uh, I'm going to say something to you. I probably haven't said to anybody else, you know, uh, my departure from the UFC was by choice. You know, somebody at a high level said the wrong thing to me. They questioned my integrity. They questioned my work ethics. And they caught me at a bad time, you know. But then I wasn't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a guy that takes a takes any crap anyway, especially when it comes to my job performance and what I'm doing. And I, I am I am a control freak, kinda, you know, but you have to be in control of things. 
And, you know, he came at me and I went back at him. And I do regret that I did that. I, I could have handled that a little better. I could have, maybe cooler heads could have prevailed, you know, but it, it didn't. And uh, that was probably, I think that's one thing that, that, that maybe I didn't handle probably the way I should have. But, you know, when, you, when you're in there, baby, and you, you, you're getting hit, you're like, oh, no. Oh, hell no. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's what it was. You know, he was he was throwing them, and I was ducking them. But a couple of them got thrown. Like, oh no, hell no, baby. Uh uh uh. uh. But oh. once it's on, and this is the other thing, once it's on, it's on. Like you can yes. control yourself yes. and the rest of it, and then in hindsight, and and I'm sure there is, but you know, but once there's two things, man, that I was going to say, like because one, your job requires you to be a control freak, because if you're not. It's like my accountant. My accountant is ridiculous, like a control freak. Nothing, and and I and I think like, but that's who I want as my accountant. I don't want a guy that goes, ah, yeah, oh, yeah mate, yeah. should be good. Um, yeah. oh yeah, by the yeah, way, yeah, yeah, you're gonna do three years in jail. This, yeah, let's just move this over here a little bit and just hope it stays up there. Yeah, no, 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 it's not. And then once once you're under that pressure cooker, and it kicks off. Uh, like you know, it kicks off. You know, we can all act better, but yeah. I've seen the way you act, and I've dealt with you for quite a number of years. Even though, like, it wasn't thing, and like, it was a tough job, man. And it, there, there wasn't a lot of room for error, so it's none, none. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, it was, it was, there was no, no room for error because you guys and it, the guys were so used to that. They were so used to me handling things that way, and. You know, it worked and it flowed and it and 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 it didn't work until they got in it, you know, and and they they saw it and they could come to me, you know, they 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 didn't have to go to somebody else or they didn't have to go to ten other people to get one answer. You know, uh I never wanted that. You know, if you wanted ten things do, you needed one place to go to. One person, one voice, right here. And what what did you learn? What so you know so you know you said that interaction and that, but where did the renaissance from that from that those regrets those that bad thing, where did that go? Like so when that happened with the UFC, what was the mindset? Because everyone looks at you, and this is one of the things like, well, at least for me, like I've followed your your career kind of thing, and I'm right. like when when that happened, you look at it and I'm like, the balls on this guy. He just, he's like, he just left the UFC. Oh, he went and started, and now he's gone and started a, a new company and a podcast. And I sit there and I think like, why am I such a bitch? Me, right? And, but then I, I, I sometimes think like, but what was the actual mindset? Because I'm sure that now we're talking on an intelligent level. I'm sure Bert right. wasn't without fear. I'm sure Bert wasn't like, oh, yeah, I'm good. I, I just quit the UFC. Can you talk us through that mindset and what were the thoughts that were going on in your mind? Well, you know, it, it, no, you're, you're, you're always, especially when you do things off the cuff. When you do things off the cuff and then you, then you have time to sit and digest it and it resonates, 
then you then you have an oh shit moment. You know, you're like, oh, oh, oh what? <laughs> you know, and you have that, but you know what? I also know as a, as a coordinator and a person that puts things together, knowing that you put them together, they got to stay together. You know, it, it has to stay and it has to work. And, you know, initially you, you think about it, but then you say, you know what? I got to reinvent it. I got to keep going. You know, I, I, I got to make this work and I got to make, I got to make it happen. Initially, when, you know, I think right, at, right, right afterwards, I think I spent maybe, I think I spent maybe about four months not doing anything, which was maddening for me, not doing anything for four months. It's as bad as it is right now. Right now it's, you know, but I understand it because right now we're all in a situation where my last fight was March 7th, exact to the exact date, March 7th, I had a fight. And March 10th, the world shut down or the United States shut down. And so it was, you know, so it hasn't happened since then. But before that, right after I left the UFC for about four months, I did nothing. I had to digest it and think what was going to be next. And you know, the phone rang and it was someone on there that was having a fight and wanted to know if I'd be interested in possibly helping them out a little bit. And it took me two seconds to think about it. You know, and it was heck yeah, you know, I'm I'm good. I'm good. And I, I, I got that one and then another one called, you know, and people knew I was out there but didn't know where my head was or or my availability, or, you know, I even had a guy that said to me, you know, I ain't, man, I didn't think of calling you because I know damn well I couldn't pay you, which wasn't true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it, 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 if, if, if you had, if you had a job and, you know, I was, I was still looking to stay active because I learned that, man, you know, that, that four months, was the longest time in my life that I'd ever been without doing something since I got out of high school in my life, you know, and I realized it, you know, cause I got out of high school and I went to college, you know, I got out of high school in June. I was in college in August in, in, in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, which for me is like coming to Sydney. It's yeah, way over yeah, on the yeah, other yeah. side. You know, and I went I went from college to the Marine Corps, you know, and I went I was in the Marine Corps doing Vietnam and I got out of the Marine Corps, and went right to New York, you know, and from New York into Philadelphia and running into Joe Frazier, and Muhammad Ali and George Foreman and running into Dana White. So I was never, ever. Without. Working or without doing something and. It was February of 2015 and February 26, as a matter of fact. So for the first, the next four or five months, I wasn't doing nothing. And I had never, 
not since high school had I ever been like this. So that was that was that was that was a shake shake up. And you know what? I'm not a young man. So it was like, whoa, you know, I'm 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 at a stage in life where people talk about retiring. I'm not even thinking about that, bro. I've, I got about I got about another good ten years right now to do whatever. You know what's crazy is when people look at at you, see all the stuff you said, and I'm just saying for me, it it just doesn't seem it. It just seems like you have it all figured out. Do you get what I mean? I think it's such an important thing for for not just young people, for anyone to see that. Like man, nah, everyone goes through that stuff, and you know you you. You question yourself, you second guess yourself, you have sleepless nights, I'm sure you have. But yes, when sir. I'm looking at you, yes, it's sir. like, nah, Bert's got it. Like even even when you left, I was like, the ball's on this guy. How how how? Who does that? You know? Yeah. And I was and I was thinking, yeah, but you know what? He does that because he's Bert Watson and you know, he's got I'm sure he's got it all figured out. I'm sure there's 30 organizations waiting for him. And yeah, yeah. No. nah, there you were having sleepless nights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you never, you never have it figured out. Remember, remember, I said to you, boss, you have a one and one. You have one chance and one chance to figure it out. That's my life's motto, and I don't care how old you are or how young you are. You got one chance and one chance to f it up, and you know what that f word is. Yes, sir. You know, sure. but you fig you figure it you 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 figure it out, and you got to realize that, and you got to know it. And if you don't know that, then you know how to give up. You know, and 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 that means you didn't know you had a one and one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't figure yeah. you had no chance. You know, but yes, oh yeah, it, it's it's. You know, I I've worked with guys at the highest level. And at the beginner's level, you know, uh, and 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 you see it all, and you see people struggle through it, and you hear it, and you know, and and you struggle through it yourself. You know, that four months that I did absolutely nothing was, it was mind blowing, you know, because I'd never done that before, you know, and it's like whoa, you know, and the the phone the phone rang, you know, and. You got you. You had you know. I, I enjoy working with people who are just starting out and people who are eager to learn. You know because I like to give what I got. You know when you're at when you're at the highest level, everybody up there feels they've got as much as you got. Right, 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 right. So, so, so nobody's listening. You know, everybody's expecting you. It's nothing but expectations at that highest level. And the highest expectations, yeah, and you have to live up to it, you know. And you know, at that level, are you kidding me? I mean, the UFC is the biggest company in the world, and we had the best fighters in the world, you know. And everybody's eyes and all the television and everything was was on it, you know. I I, I had one article that came out in Japan. Where they took my head and put it on, put it on Bruce Willis's body. <laughs> okay, in one of his movies, Babysitter to something he did or something movie he did, you know. And and just that quick moment, I'm like, damn, you know, that's what people think, or that's how people react and do things, you know. 
So you have to you have to keep in your head, you know, there's a one in one and you got to keep going, man. And it happens to everybody, man. Trust me, on some level, regardless, regardless, it happens. But I just want to thank you so much, man. You've been so generous with your time. Um, where can people find you? Where can like what are you doing? So what are the things now? Uh, because we're now wrapping it up. Now let us know everything about you. Where can they follow hey, you? What can they do? Hey man, I am I am big on social media. You know, uh, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Bert Watson for real. The number four. You just pop in Bert Watson. I just started a YouTube channel on YouTube. Go to Bert Watson Promotions. And look under, you got to click on the videos and you got videos of my interviews. I've got some some chatter videos. I got some some videos where I explain how to roll gloves. You know, I talk to you about rolling gloves and, you know, just different things that I've experienced in a lot of the interviews. But that's in Burt Watson Promotions on the YouTube channel. Uh, I've got a podcast now I'm doing on MMA Junkie called Legends to Legends that I sit down and I talk with people like Randy Couture and Chael Sonnen and George St. Pierre. And, you know, I, I, I get to sit with them and you get to see what they're doing now and some of the things that we've been through. And we talk, we talk some OG chatter, some of the little fun things that we've been through and we've done, you know. So I'm, I'm very active on social media. And anytime, all you got to do is put it out there. And if I'm on social media and I see it, as you know, Yes, sir. Hundred percent. He did that. I have to say the truth. You know, I send out a lot of um texts and that to people to see. You know, I want to get people interesting people on the podcast. And uh, I actually was one of the people. I was like, man, I don't want to message Bert because he probably won't message me back. And I've had I've had like bigger names than you, but I was actually, you know what I mean. Like I really wanted to get the story. You know what I mean. And and then it took me a while. And then I said, fuck it, I'm going to do it. And I did it. And yeah, he did hit me back. So. That's a hundred percent true, man. That's that that is, man, and I really appreciate it. I really oh, yeah. appreciate oh, it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You hit me up, hit me up on Bert Watson, and I will hit you back. And I I love chatting with everybody on Instagram. Going and when you go to my YouTube channel, make sure you subscribe, baby. Yes, sir. Like and subscribe to Bert's channel, guys, and to this one too, please. So, um, <laughs> thank you very much, Bert. Thank you so much, man. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. No, I, I appreciate you, man, and, and and having an opportunity to put myself out there in, in, in Australia, you know, and, and, and to kind of talk to you and your fans. It's nothing but a pleasure to me, baby. You know, trust me. Thank you, you know, sir. This is what we do and why we do it, baby, all night long. Thank you, sir. Ooh. Thank you. You're welcome, man.